so thankful to be here with you this morning, to get a chance to sing to God and pray to God, and over this next 45 minutes, proclaim the gospel through Exodus. And it is my hope that you have come to glorify God this morning. Um, How pleasing it is to our Lord when people come in spirit and truth to bring Him the honor and glory that He's so worthy of. And I pray that He be blessed this morning with our gathering in what we are doing. Let's, Let's go to God in prayer before we move into the Word. Heavenly Father, we praise You for being a sovereign God. This world is yours. All that in it are yours. And at times when it seems to have moved beyond repair, we know that you are a good and gracious God and that you will bring yourself glory in the redemption of many. You created, Father, all that is seen and unseen for your own name's sake. We, those created in your image, We are the ones who brought suffering and death into your good creation. We have been enslaved and we enslave others with our own sin. We have brought death to ourselves and others by our own sin. And so we ask this morning, fathers, we look at Exodus chapter 1 and the slavery and death that came through Pharaoh, that you would be gracious with us, that you would grant to us a ministry of life in the midst of this great battle. Forgive us for not seeing the stakes. Forgive us for missing the characters here. We ask, Lord, that you would find yourself glorified in the redemption of those here this very morning. We thank you for being a God who redeems sinners by grace, that you make things right, that you will one day restore the heavens and the earth. I ask that you would help us to see your purpose in the midst of suffering and in the midst of death that you would cause us to be encouraged and encourage those who are suffering right now, that you would compel us through this text to bring the hope of Jesus Christ, His wounds that heal our wounds, His life, death, and resurrection that save many from death. We ask, Lord, that you would bless us as we worship you. We pray as well, Lord, for other like-minded churches here in the area. We pray specifically this morning for Orchard Community. And as Pastor Todd brings a gospel message, we ask, Lord, that you would empower that church to be a living testimony in Campbell and here in San Jose. We pray, Lord, that the testimony that goes from that church would bring many to a saving grace and that you would be honored even this morning as they pray and as they sing and as they proclaim the gospel in your glorious name. We are so thankful, Lord, that you've gathered us here for this distinct purpose. This day was set aside before the foundations of the world. You've gathered exactly who you desire to be here. And so be glorified in the preaching and be glorified in the hearing. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I am so glad you are here. If you were here with us last week, then you had a chance for us to participate in this great study in the book of Exodus. Um, I had a dear brother ask me last night, he goes, what are you what are you preaching on now? And I said, we just started Exodus. And he goes, ooh. And that's the right response. I mean, that is Exodus. I mean, almost everything about this book is fantastic. The theology is fantastic. The, the epic um, miracles are fantastic. Seeing the people and their need for God is fantastic. And so I, I pray that you are here to be uh, in awe of our Creator and the great redemption He brings through Christ. There's no other response to it. Now, I may not preach it well, but this book stands by itself, all right? All right. So, um, I got a better intro than I had last week for the Super Bowl. You ready? This one's not bad. It's not bad. So, as I was growing up, the, the series when I was younger was Star Wars, and that was the movie. I know it's still is being played today, although I would not consider those movies Star Wars movies. Some of you may, may disagree. Uh, it was evident early on that those movies were more than just the characters that we saw being played. They were more than Obi-Wan and Luke and Darth Vader and the Emperor. In each of those movies, it was apparent that there was a, deep, a deeper battle taking place, a battle between good and evil, between light and dark. And in the movie, the theme was between the Force... And, of course, the dark side of the force. And if you didn't pick up this central theme early, 
then you would, you would miss many of the major points of the movie. You would not enjoy it as much, and you would certainly not understand it as much. And I believe the same holds true for the book of Exodus. God desires us to read this and not miss the main characters that are involved. If we do, we will miss some of the deeper truths that he desires to reveal to us. Now, at first glance, you'll say, well, Exodus is a story about two human leaders. you got Moses and you got Pharaoh, and they come into conflict, and, and this clash takes place. And that's, that's right in part, but it misses the main theme. So you might say, oh, well, of course, it's not just Pharaoh and Moses, it's Egypt and Israel, and it's God's people versus the people of this world. And you're closer still, but still missing the primary characters of the book. In order for us to understand the themes of Exodus, of God redeeming a people out of slavery for his own namesake, we must see that it's not Moses and Pharaoh or Israel and Egypt. It's God and Satan engaged in a universal and eternal battle for the souls of men and the glory of the Creator. And so underneath all of this, and we're going to see this today and it will permeate our study, is God battling against the evil one. And from it I learn as we begin this morning to look at this battle between these two great foes that we will learn to remain faithful in the midst of our suffering and put all of our hope and all of our trust in a most unlikely Savior by the name of Jesus Christ. If you were here last week, then you saw what God did. He brought Jacob and his family of 70 into Egypt under the watch care of Jacob's son, Joseph. And in the midst of being in Egypt, he turned that family of 70, his chosen family, into what? A chosen nation. Look at verse 7 with me. If you're not in Exodus chapter 1, please go there. Verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So as time passed, both under Joseph and after Joseph's death, God continued to bless Israel, but their prosperity turned to persecution. Successive pharaohs felt no obligation to Joseph or his family. And as a result, instead of seeing Israel as a blessing in their land, which they were as God's people, they became afraid of Israel's prosperity and they subjected them to miserable suffering and even death sentences. And so what I would like for us to see this morning is just four simple things. Number one, how Satan brings suffering. Number two, how God brings growth. Number three, how Satan brings death. And number four, how God brings salvation. Suffering, growth, death, and salvation. Are you with me this morning? All right, you got to stay in tune with this. Now, see, Exodus is full of fantastic details, but they populate the story. And so I want to offer a lot of those details to you, not to overwhelm you, but to, to get you saturated in these main themes and this great battle between our living God and Satan himself. So point number one, Satan brings suffering. In the opening chapter, chapter 1, we find out a new king, a new pharaoh is over Egypt. And he was afraid of the people of God. Look at verse 9. Pharaoh said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So God had fulfilled his promise. One of his promises to Abraham was to make him into a mighty nation. And so while in Egypt and under the care of Joseph and even after Joseph's death, God populated the people. But they became so populent, this immigrant population, in the eyes of the many, many of the pharaohs, they became a security threat or at least a perceived security threat. And so rather than build a wall per the Trump playbook, they, Pharaoh thought, we'll just use the racism card and we'll dehumanize them and make them slaves. Look at verse 11. Therefore they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them, the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. And they built for Pharaoh store cities, Python and Ramses. And so the move by Pharaoh was both politically 
and economically genius. He came up with a plan, taking taskmasters, committing the Israelites to slavery, that he might crush their spirits and ruin their fertility, that he might stop them from becoming the great nation that they had become. He would slow their population and simultaneously get free labor by making them slaves. And in so doing, bring these cities, Python and Ramses, they were store cities. They were strategic cities placed with both supplies and the military, used for the protection of Egypt. So ruthless, I want you to get this picture, so ruthless were the Egyptians with the Israelites that Moses, who's the author of all five, of the first five books of the Bible, he uses some, a really interesting Hebrew literary device in, Revela- in Revelation, in verses 13 and 14. We'll get there, but just not yet. And he groups these words together. You get it in the English. You don't need to know Hebrew for this. But listen to, look at verse 13, and hear the magnitude of the suffering that Moses is trying to communicate. So they, again, the Egyptians, ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves And they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And you get this repetition of work and slavery and ruthlessness and bitterness. It was extreme suffering. And you must know that to understand what Moses is trying to communicate here. In every respect, Pharaoh consciously or unconsciously, was thwarting the purpose and plan of God for his people. In every respect, God promised to make Abraham's descendants into a mighty nation. It was Pharaoh's plan under slavery to stifle them as a people. God promised to Abraham to bring them into the promised land, the land flowing with what? Milk and honey. And yet here, Pharaoh says, look at verse 10, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they escape from the land. God had purposed to make his people fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with his glory, fulfilling the great creation ordinance we saw last week in Genesis chapter 1. But Pharaoh resented God's people, and instead of allowing them to be free to serve and to worship and to play for the glory of God, he enslaved them, and he subjected them to himself, a wannabe God. You see, Pharaoh claimed to be the incarnate son of Re, or Ra. That was the sun god, not sun, S-O-N, but sun, S-U-N. And the sun god was the primary god in the Egyptian pantheon. In other words, this struggle that we see here between Egypt and Israel, and which we'll see next week between Moses and Pharaoh, it was not political, it was theological. It was the creator of the universe against a perceived god in the form of a man who represented Satan himself. In claiming lordship, and this is what Pharaoh did, in claiming lordship over God's people, Pharaoh became a servant of of Satan, using slavery and suffering to subject God's people to pain and misery and prevent them from being the very people that God had ordained them and created them and prospered them to be. Satan uses similar tactics today, does he not? I mean, not much has changed in the thousands of years since this episode took place. To keep God's people from worshiping Him well today, He brings suffering and slavery through sin in our own lives. God wants to grow you, and He wants to prosper you, just like He did the people in Egypt, the Israelites in Egypt. He wants you to become a mighty nation. He wants you to be fruitful and multiply. He wants your life to be a living testimony to how good He is. And because Satan desires the exact opposite, Satan brings sickness and death. He brings misery and suffering through broken marriages, through job losses. He brings suffering into our homes with rebellious children. He captivates many hearts today by tempting us to inordinate desires to be entertained or to be inebriated. He uses sexual attraction and our fleshly appetites for power and prestige and information to enslave us. For many, the taskmaster that Satan has used over God's children, especially in this valley, it is a smartphone or a Facebook account where he says, I can consume your time by making it FaceTime instead of people time. 
I can captivate your heart and set you in front of a computer for hours instead of equipping you to serve faithfully the living God. My beloved, we must be wise. We must see that this real battle at hand is between God and Satan, and it's over the souls of men. This is not circumstantial, and it's not simply about something like technology or sexual addiction. This is a real battle between two real powers, much greater than us, and yet our souls hang in the balance. So the question I think that is raised here is why why would God allow Satan to inflict suffering? Why would God allow Satan to use Pharaoh to do that to his chosen people? If this is how the chosen people are treated, maybe we ought not want to be chosen. Why would he do this? Point number two, I pray you're still with me. God brings growth. Suffering, this is almost something I don't need to say. Suffering's part of the human condition, is it not? All of us know suffering to one degree or another. As sinful creatures living in a broken world, suffering in many ways defines humanity. But I want you to realize the suffering that we see in this passage is not self-inflicted. The suffering we see here is a result of Satan attacking God's people, inflicting the children of Abraham. It is suffering inflicted by Satan through Pharaoh, specifically to torment the people of God. Now, this shouldn't surprise us. We saw last week in Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse was what? There's going to be a war enmity between the people of God and the people of this world. Genesis 3.15, God said, I will put enmity between you, speaking to Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, life in the fallen world will be cursed. And if you are part of the family of God, if you know God the Father through your faith in Jesus Christ, then you are distinct from the world, and you are now at war with Satan. So the question still becomes, well, why would God allow it? Why would God orchestrate it? If he loves his people so much, why bring this type of suffering in? He certainly has the power to stop it. And he has the power to stop Satan. Satan must get permission from God to do anything. And yet the psalmist tells us something even more intriguing. Psalm 105, verse 25, God turned the Egyptian hearts to hate his people to deal craftily with his servants. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Why would God bring suffering upon his people? There are many reasons theologically, but I want to stay true to the text, and I'm just going to bring out a few that I saw come out as a result of the studies. First, God brings suffering so that we might grow as a community of believers. This is an interesting one, and maybe you haven't thought of it. I pray you do now. Look at verse 12. The more they were oppressed, the Israelites, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Now, Pharaoh had said, let's deal shrewdly with the Israelites. And then in verse 10, he said, lest they multiply. And God comes around two verses later in verse 12 and says, the more they were oppressed, the more they were multiplied. So much for conventional wisdom. Maybe the Apostle Paul was right in 1 Corinthians 1.19 when he said, God destroys the wisdom of the wise. God destroys it. This plan that Pharaoh set forth, it looked good, but not in accordance with God's will. Through their slavery and suffering, God would not only multiply his people and in so doing bring him glory. The exact opposite should have happened. They should have dwindled as a people, but they grew because God blessed them, thwarting the work of Satan. But he was able to cause the Israelites to become a people Instead of assimilating into the Egyptian culture, which they most certainly would have done, that's the hard struggle for us today, isn't it? To be in the world but not of the world. Instead of assimilating and becoming like the Egyptians, through suffering, God brought them together to be unified as the people of God. We see that there's an incredible power when people suffer together, is there not? We see bonds amongst veterans who fought together in battle and war. For years they stay together. We see this amongst first responders who have gone through very difficult times. We see it in grief groups, grief groups where people meet together over a common pain or a common suffering and how community comes out of that. 
Why? Because their suffering has unity. It has unifying power. And that's why, my beloved, when the church suffers well together, when we collectively go through really difficult times, whether it's a a church discipline issue or a public attack or maybe persecution from the government, when we bind together and we suffer together, we grow closer and we grow stronger as a people. And so God uses suffering in the context of this passage, and I would say for the church, to unite us, to unite us. Secondly, though, I want you to see that God brought suffering to reveal to them their need for salvation. Their need for salvation. Suffering tells us there's something wrong. When we're suffering, something is wrong. When we suffer extremely, we think to ourselves, something needs to change. And those are not wrong thoughts. The suffering of the Israelites at the hands of the Egyptians, as I said, was so extreme. Look at verse 14 again. Hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. Now, according to the historians, brick making was some of the hardest work someone could do. It involved hauling of water, pouring of clay, cutting of bricks, hauling and stacking the bricks, laying mortar all underneath the Egyptian sun, all extremely difficult work. So this is suffering on top of suffering. And for the Israelites who could not keep up, they were tortured or they were killed. But after 430 years, that's a long time, my beloved. After 430 years, Egypt had become their home. We will see a little bit later, it was very difficult for God to get them out of Egypt. Even though they were in slavery, it was hard to do. It's hard to get people to move to a new home. I remember when we moved from Scotts Valley to Scotts Valley from Boulder Creek 10 years ago. 10 years we were in Boulder Creek. We were only moving 10 miles, and it seemed brutal for us to to be so uprooted and so disturbed to go 10 whopping miles. Had things not been difficult in Egypt, it is unlikely the Israelites would have wanted to go at all. I remember what they were being called to do. Follow an unknown leader to an unknown place promised by an invisible God. That's a hard call. That's a hard call. By slaving the Israelites, Pharaoh was trying to prevent them from escaping the land in verse 10. And the very thing that he did compelled them to leave by the salvation of God. He tried to keep them. God says, that's fine. I'll use that too. And I'll draw them out with your slavery. Is it not true of us too, my beloved, that God... Now listen, he uses suffering to draw us to himself, does he not? This is another simple truth. God brings suffering into our life that we might long for Christ and salvation more. He brings suffering of all kind. Many of us have physical ailments. Many of us have relational tensions. Some of us have suffering at work. Some of us have suffering in their home. All of this for the believer is designed to draw us closer to Christ And that desire to be delivered from sin and suffering once and for all. And that hope of the promised land that God will bring us into where there'll be, again, revelation, no more tears, no more crying. God will wipe it all away. Whether we want to admit it or not, when we suffer, we look at the Savior a little differently. A little deeper, longing a little more. We cast our eyes upon Him and we long for His rest. If we never suffer any hardship in this life, I don't believe that's possible for a Christian. If you don't suffer any suffering as a Christian, there's something wrong. But if, we, if, if life just went real easy, we wouldn't long that much for heaven. And yet we are to long for heaven because that's where our Savior is. I'll give you one more. God uses suffering to cultivate gratitude in the hearts of his children. Last week we saw that God chose Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his 12 sons not because they were holy or righteous or deserving of favor. He chose them to be his treasured possession because it pleased him. It was for his own namesake that he would gather a people and make them fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and fill it with his glory. As sinners then, what the Israelites deserved, now listen, because this is hard, what we all deserve in light of our sinful condition is suffering. Suffering now and suffering for all eternity. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That's the eternal death. 
That's eternal separation from the living God in the lake of fire. I would argue, and I think you would agree, any suffering we experience on this side in the flesh is infinitely better than the suffering that we will experience or would experience in the lake of fire. Agreed? Now, living in a culture that views all suffering as bad, all suffering, and to be avoided regardless of the outcome, the biblical narrative offers something authentic and, I believe, refreshing for us. That as sinners, now listen, as sinners, we are deserving of suffering both now and for eternity. As sinners saved by grace in Jesus Christ, suffering reminds us of what Christ endured to set us free from suffering. When we suffer and we we look to Christ upon the cross, how he endured the punishment that we deserved for his people, it should give us great hope. When we read Isaiah 53, 4, and the prophet said, Surely he, Christ, took up our pain and bore our suffering. When we read 1 Peter 2, 24, that he, Christ himself, bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might, what, die to sin and live to righteousness. And then Peter says, By his wounds you have been healed. Suffering, my beloved, should cultivate in the true Christian a deep, gratitude and a deep joy that this is not it that christ bore our suffering in his body for us to deliver us from this suffering and the eternal suffering of the lake of fire that by his wounds we are delivered from eternal wounds and by bearing our suffering in our place he is able to bring us out of the slavery of egypt out of the slavery and bondage of our own sin and bring us into his Father's house, into his Father's rest, into that place where the Father promises to truly wipe away every tear from our eyes, that place where there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away, the new has come, it is the church with Christ in eternity. Oh, man, that's a lot of amens. If you heard what I just said, can you imagine? No more tears, no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. Thank you. Better, better, better. Listen to Spurgeon. He said, all right then, saints, be patient. Be patient, my brethren, amidst the persecution or trials you may be called upon to hear and be thankful that they are so often overruled by the growth of the church, the spread of the gospel, and the honor of Christ. That's reason to praise God. God has always purposed suffering for his people that through the suffering and through the judgment he might redeem a people for his own name's sake. He's always planned that. It's the pattern of the cross, Jesus Christ suffering, life, death, resurrection to accomplish salvation for sinners like us. It's the pattern of the Christian life as well. 1 Peter 2, verse 21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And if we follow Christ, our suffering Savior, and we know that heaven is our end in him, then we can hear the Apostle Paul tell us to rejoice in our suffering and not think Paul mad. Romans chapter 5, Paul said, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he's talking about the church. He's talking specifically about his own sufferings, but he wants us to rejoice as well. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing, listen, that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. But God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given it to us. All right, number one, Satan brings suffering. Number two, God brings growth out of that same suffering. Satan cannot beat God on this. Satan can bring suffering upon God's church. God will win, does win every time, every time. Number three, Satan likes to bring death too. So Satan's two primary weapons, suffering and death slavery, and death. He wants to get us to practice sin faithfully because in practicing sin faithfully, you become enslaved, John 8, 34. And once enslaved in that sin, it leads to death, Romans 6, 23. So Pharaoh realizes he tried to to suppress the people and, 
and, and work through slavery. And that didn't work. It backfired on him. And so he ups his hatred for God and for God's people, and he moves from slavery to slaughter. He says, well, then I'm just going to start killing people. Claiming God-like authority, listen, over God's people, Pharaoh institutes a death sentence. Look at verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. The plan was simple. He brings Shifra and Pua, Hebrew midwives, likely midwives who oversaw all the midwives in Israel. So these were women that were in positions of authority over all the midwives. And they were giving specific orders by the Egyptian king, a king that you did not do what he said. If it's a son, kill the son. It's infanticide. It's infanticide of the male children born to Hebrew women. And Pharaoh thought, well, if I, if I kill the men and I begin to kill the boys, then they can't grow up to be soldiers and I will suppress their military power. Number one. But I don't want to kill the women because then I can continue to have my free labor. I'll just put them into slavery. I'll kill, the bo- I'll kill the sons and I'll enslave the daughters. It is evil in every capacity. Murder the sons of God and enslave the daughters of God. Remember who this battle is with. Pharaoh had become a true antichrist, had he not? A true antichrist. An enemy of God, an enemy of life, working against the creation order to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. You can't do that if the sons are being murdered. My beloved Pharaoh here, early in the history of God's people, foreshadows every antichrist of history that would follow. Every agent of Satan who would bring the culture of death into the culture of life that God had ordained. In the 20th century, the 20th century alone is riddled with many lowercase a antichrists and their plans and purposes for cultures of death. Just to name a few, Hitler's final solution, Stalin's reign of terror, Pol Pot's killing field, communist China's policy, one family, one child. Same strategy, same strategy cultivate a culture of death to achieve a political aim and thwart the very will of God. Now, you don't have to be an historian to know some of the movements of the Antichrist over the 20th century. You just have to know a little bit of contemporary news. If you've been watching the news lately, the culture of death here in the United States has raised its stakes. First in New York, where that bill was passed, And then two weeks ago, a member of the Virginia state legislator and the governor of Virginia, Ralph Northam, they made national headlines when a bill was proposed in that legislator that would legalize abortion all the way up, listen, to the moment of birth. And then to make matters worse, in a journalistic interview a day later, Governor Northam essentially affirmed a position that apparently supported infanticide even after birth. We don't have to go back to Pharaoh. We don't have to look to Egypt. The culture of death has been and is at our doorstep. It is here. Some estimates say that since the Supreme Court decision of Roe v. Wade in 1973 that legalized abortion, more than 54 million babies... Do you know that 16% of the current U.S. population? 54 million babies have been murdered by the taskmasters of death in the United States. Even during the President's State of the Union, for those of you who watched on Tuesday, we saw the proponents of that death. The President said, listen, quote, to defend the dignity of every person, I am asking the Congress to pass legislation to prohibit the late-term abortion of children who can feel pain in the mother's womb. And then he said, 
quote, let us work together to build a culture that cherishes innocent life and let us reaffirm a fundamental truth. Listen to this. All children, born and unborn, are made in the image of God. When he said that, half of the chamber stood up in wondrous applause. And then if you were paying attention, the camera went to another half of the chamber where they sat silent, seated, stoic rebellion. Now, unless you missed the point, this was not Democrats versus Republicans. This is not liberals versus conservatives. It wasn't pro-life versus pro-choice. This is Satan versus God. The battle's the same. It hasn't changed. The seed of the serpent would strike the heel of the woman's seed, promoting a culture of death and slavery. That's why it's so hard, my beloved. That's why it's so hard. It's been a consistent theme throughout human history. It's certainly part now of the American DNA. We are to hate it. We are to fight against it. We are to pray against it. We are to minister to those who are trapped in it. But we must not be surprised by it. Not God's children. Not with a history like this. We must not be caught off guard, and we must not miss the main characters involved. This is a holy battle between God and Satan, and man hangs in the balance. We cannot miss it. I fear we do. I heard people talking about Democrats and Republicans and conservative and liberals and pro-life and pro-choice. As a Christian, don't miss it. It's much bigger than that. We cannot dismiss the slavery and sin. It's not an historical glitch. This moment in U.S. history, which you think or some think should be otherwise peaceful and loving and kind, that's not the fallen condition of man. As Christians, we must be sober-minded and offer to our culture of death, listen, the very thing that God offered to the Egyptians and the Israelites, and that was a Savior. That was a savior. We don't need legislation. We don't need Supreme Court rulings. We need a savior to come in and take us out of the slavery of death and bring us into eternal life. Last point, I pray you're still with me. God brings salvation. Satan brings death. God brings salvation. What the Israelites need, what they needed is what we need. They were enslaved. They needed to be set free. They were under death sentence. They needed to be set free into life. They needed a Savior who would come in the flesh and do what they could not do. We'll see next week, beginning next week, that God sends a man by the name of Moses. And Moses was a type of Christ. He pointed to the anti-type, to the ultimate Savior, Jesus Christ, who came, as you know, to set you free from your sin and to give you eternal life instead of eternal death. He came to bring life into this culture of death. But in our passage, and I so don't want us to miss this, prior to Moses' birth, God sends some very unlikely saviors to his people in Israel. Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua, likely, as I said, the overseers of all the Hebrew midwives. They were ordered by Pharaoh to kill every son born to a Hebrew woman. But we are told in verse 17, look with me with your eyes, I want you to see this that Shifra and Pua and all the midwives under them, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So good. Some people say, Where, where's the gospel in the Old Testament? Where is it not in the Old Testament? Their names are listed here by Moses in the book. That's a big deal. Do you notice you do not see the names of the elders of Israel listed here? Nor do you see the name of Pharaoh listed here. Certainly Moses knew it. Instead, he lists the names of two women, two midwives, two servants, Shifra and Pua. I pray you never forget them. Shifra means beautiful one, beautiful one. Pua means splendid one. And did they live up to their names? Beautiful one and splendid one before the Ten Commandments were given by God to Moses on Mount Sinai where it said, Thou shalt not commit murder. 
God had given these two women significant knowledge of himself, his laws, and the judgment that was to come. Maybe they recalled the words of Moses, I mean of Noah, in, Noah, in Genesis 9-6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Maybe. What we do know is that these, these women had a better understanding of the fear of God than the fear of Pharaoh, which means they had a, a better understanding of life after death than Pharaoh did. They were living out what Jesus would teach centuries later in Matthew chapter 10 when the Lord said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God, who can destroy both the soul and the body into hell. And then in Luke it says, Yes, I tell you, fear him. They got that. They understood that defying the orders of Pharaoh was a death sentence. They understood that. But at a deeper level, they understood that defying the law of God meant an eternal death sentence. And they were willing to forsake their temporal lives for eternal salvation. They were willing to give their lives for the Savior, the salvation of the sons of Israel. And so the w- women wisely chose to fear the Lord and spare God's children. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> so the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this? He's not happy. Why have you done this and let the male children live? And the midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now look at verse 20. So God dealt with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So these two midwives, these two women... Such unlikely saviors of God's people. They stand up against the most powerful man in the world by what? By putting their faith in God. They stand up against Satan's own vice regent on earth by simply trusting in God to save them. And the outcome is glorious, is it not? God is glorified in their faith. Not only does God save the Hebrew babies from death, look at verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. He kept to the promise. He kept blessing Israel. But God, and I love this, he glorified himself in his personal and intimate affection with these two women. What did he do for them? Well, first of all, he spared their lives. They were to be executed by Pharaoh for disobeying Pharaoh's commands, but they're not put to death here. He saves them, and then we are told he gives them families, which this was a hard one to research, but apparently it was a luxury for a midwife. They did not enjoy families. So he brings, he gives them life, and then he blesses their womb with life that they might be fruitful and multiply. My beloved, the unlikely Savior that you know well a carpenter from Nazareth by the name of Jesus Christ, centuries later would stand up for Shifra and Pua. He'd stand up for them. He would stand up for all those who would say no to a culture of death and yes to life in God through faith. This unlikely Savior Jesus Christ would stand up for all who would fear God first and in so doing find themselves set free from the power of sin and set free from the sting of death and be delivered into the life of Christ. Jesus would come and give his life that we might be empowered by the Holy Spirit to embrace righteousness and live the life that we were called and created to live. He did all of this, as you know, on Calvary as he stared Satan down, he stared sin down, he stared death down on the cross, just like Shifra and Pua, willing to lay down his life so that others might live. I would argue that he is the beautiful one. He is the splendid one. And his fidelity to God brought life so that by grace through faith, Every man, woman, and child who repents and believes will no longer be enslaved and no longer taste death, but instead be set free to have and enjoy the fullness of life. Who is God? Who is God? 
God blessed Jesus' fidelity by giving him a family too, did he not? I want, I want to be careful. I don't want to say he blessed Jesus' womb, but it makes sense. That's you. That's the church in our life, in our Lord giving his life. You become the fruit of that sacrifice. My beloved, I, I know at times it's easy to move with the culture. I know that. Following the schemes of the evil one, even when we don't know it. But we must remember that the real battle is between God and Satan. The real battle between good and evil. And we must remember that God always wins. Paul was right when he was assuring the church in Rome as he closes his great treaty, his great theological treaty in Romans. He says in verse six, chapter 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Pharaoh attempted to enslave and put to death the people of God, and the people of God multiplied and grew very strong. No one, my beloved, not even a fallen angel as powerful as Satan can thwart the will of God. So a question for you as I close, why do we try? Satan could not do it. And every time he tried, God responded. So why are we so foolish to fight against the creator of the universe and our gracious father? Whenever the law or whenever political powers or the culture or your own flesh tempts you to believe or to act or speak in a manner that is contrary to the purpose and plan of God as revealed in the Bible, listen, the believer in Christ is encouraged and empowered by the Holy Spirit to fear God. We must reply as Peter did in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, when speaking before the Sanhedrin, Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. Oh, what a great teaching for his church today. We must obey God instead of man. Submitting to the word of God is the wise way to live. It is the good way to live. And it is the means by which we show that we truly know him and that we truly love him. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Every day, as Christians, we are called to take a stand. Every day, you are forced to decide whether or not you will fear God or fear man that day. This day, will you fight for God or will you fight for Satan? Perhaps it's in your own homes. Maybe you have hostile family members who persecute you for your faith. Maybe it's in the workplace. Maybe you are pressured to lie or cheat or steal, steal or deceive in order to retain your job. It might be with your own friends and family as you push against this culture of death, as you press for life and the sanctity of life and fight for the least and the last and the lost, for the souls of those who do not know Christ. Maybe your friends and family pressure you for that. Jesus is saying to you, be an instrument just like Shifra and Pua, be an instrument of salvation and bring the Savior to the people who do not know him that they might be set free from this culture of death. And just like Shifra and Pua, if you do, God will glorify himself. He will glorify himself by saving you out of judgment and blessing you with fruitfulness. With fruitfulness. Will the suffering be difficult? It's a foolish question. Suffering, by definition, is difficult. Following the suffering servant means there will be suffering for those who follow him. But as I close, I want you to, rem to remind you, it is worth it. It is so worth it, my beloved. He is so good. And the love that he pours out on us, if you've even tasted that for a minute, as we had a chance to sing some of these songs, he is so lovely and so attractive that you can suffer anything to have him. In this great battle between good and evil, between God and Satan, you want to find yourself on the side of freedom, not slavery. You want to find yourself on the side of life and not death. There's much talk right now in the midst of this moral revolution of being on the right side of history. 
And if you are not changing your morality in accordance with the word of God as the culture goes, then you're going to be on the wrong side of history. It's more important to be on the, wrong, on the right side of eternity than the right side of history. So I want to encourage you to that end as I read to you this last stanza from a song by Andrew Peterson, and then I'll pray. We've heard this story all our lives. Still, we feel the pain of the crucified. And the end, death still comes as a surprise. Now listen, he speaks of Christ. But before the breath there in the tomb, before our joy sprang from the womb, you, God, saw a day that's coming soon. When the Son will stand, the Son of God will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at His command. And the earth will split like the hull of a seed wherever Jesus plants His feet. Now listen. And up from the earth, the dead will rise like spring trees robed in petals of white singing the song of the radiant bride. And we will always be with the Lord. That's you. That's where you want to be now and forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a glorious Savior you are. How good and gracious you are that you would send Christ to be that Savior for us. That you would look down upon a broken and fractured creation and you would see the suffering and travails of your people you would see the death sentence that we brought upon ourselves with our own sin and you out of your desire to make your son's name great out of your desire to redeem a people for your name's sake you would send him to Calvary to die upon that horrible cross that we might have life you would do that Lord to set us free from the power of sin that binds us you would do that to set us free from the judgment and the sentence of death that we are under. You would do that, Lord, to bring us in, to be your people, you as our Father, we as your sons and daughters, not to be subject to death and slavery as we saw in Egypt so long ago, but to be filled with life, filled with freedom to be who we were supposed to be in the very beginning, people created in your image to know you and to love you and to be loved by you and to spend all of eternity, Lord, worshiping your holy name. I pray, Lord, that you would be patient with us, that you would help us as a people to hear these gospel truths that were taught so long ago, even in Exodus 1, that you would be gracious to apply it to our hearts and minds, that we might live as the people that we truly are. Father, I ask that you would do that here in Cambrian Park. Do that at Orchard Community. Do it at Emmaus. Do it at Dwell. Do it at First Baptist Cupertino. Do it at all your true churches here, that we might be a brilliant light in this dark place. We ask, Lord, that you would magnify your glory through your people. You are doing it, and you will do it. And we praise your name for it. In Christ's name, amen.